I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. Today, you are going to hear from Jill Cole of Cole, Martinez, Curtis, and Associates, designer of hotels, spas, and luxury residential and commercial spaces. Jill takes an idea we've covered here before, the concept, maybe it's a philosophy of surprise and delight, to even higher levels, and I wanted you to hear her perspective. <laughs> Jill Cole is the president and principal of CMCA, and what you are going to hear is the science of architecture and design presented with an artist's eye and holistic philosophy centered around function as to serve the inhabitants of her spaces. Hospitality is of particular importance to Jill. The idea that each space is created and crafted for the feeling it provides and that it's a special gift. Jill Cole is a special type of creative, and you are going to hear from her right after this. But first, I thought I would share with you the kind of day I'm having. Here's what my intro sounded like probably 15 times before I was finally able to give you the one you're listening to today. Oh, it's going to be that kind of day, folks. I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo, <laughs> and this is Convo by Design. Today, you're going to hear from Jill Cole of Cole Martinez Curtis and Associates, designer. <sighs> Not going to happen. For well over a year now, you have been hearing incredible conversations, interviews, and panels with amazing creative talent as part of our Wellness and Design Thought Leadership series presented by Thermosol. It has been and continues to be an absolute joy working with the entire team at Thermosol from the top down. This multi-generational family business has been producing the gold standard in steam generators, saunas, steam showers, and steam shower accessories for decades. Thermosol is the original steam shower with technology that is state-of-the-art, made and manufactured in the United States. The company's history with steam showers started by David Altman in 1958. Murray Altman acquired Thermosol's steam bath division in 1989, and the company is now led by Mitch Altman from their world-class production facility in Round Rock, Texas. The most successful designers and architects are using steam showers to maximize wellness, relaxation, and enjoyment for their clients. Thermosol is a staunch advocate for the design trade, and I am so proud to have them as a presenting partner of Convo by Design and the Wellness and Design Thought Leadership Series. If not familiar with the entire range of Thermosol products, please check out thermosol.com. It's so funny too, because when I, when I have a chance, you and I have not met before. Um, many times I will meet a designer or an architect at a at a trade event. And then the conversation sort of goes from there. It's like, hey, you should come on the show. You and I have not met before, but I am familiar with you and your work. And I want to dig into that a little bit. But before I do, I am a sucker for a good origin story. And okay. I'm curious, I'm curious in your own words, how you how you got to where we are today and most importantly, why? Hmm, that's a very good question. Uh, you know, when I was getting ready to go off to college and started starting to think about what I wanted to do for a living, um, I really didn't know quite where I was headed. I, I knew I, I loved art, um, specifically fine art. And I also have always been sort of a history and an archaeology junkie. And I sort of started thinking, hmm, I think I'm going to go into archaeology or become a fine artist. And my father, who was really kind of my hero, um, said to me, listen, you know, you may not end up being an heiress and you may have to learn to support yourself. And neither of those fields sound to me like something that's going to do really well for you. I, you know, I grew up a very spoiled young woman. I had a I had a very entrepreneurial father who made and lost money at a pretty rapid clip. So when I started college, he was in one of his lost money modes. And so he was very concerned that I be able to support myself, which turned out to be very uh, sage advice. And um, at the time I started at UCLA, if, if one wanted to go into the architecture field, which seemed to me like a reasonable 
career move. Um, one had to study a lot of math and science, which are my two least successful topics. I'm, I'm I, you know, before the invention of Quicken, I never had a balanced checkbook. That's not meant to be a free advertisement. I just have never been good at either of those things. And um, so I sort of dribbled into design, if you will. Um, my first job while I was going to college, my dad had a friend who had a company, it was one of the first companies that ever actually designed restaurants and hotels that wasn't an equipment supplier. And he got me a job there as a gopher after school. And I liked it so much, I quit college and went to work there full time. And that was the beginning of my career. Wow, okay. So, you know, it's really interesting too, because having spoken to so many creatives, there's really kind of two ways you go to this, you go into this, right? You go to school, you learn, you go, and then you, or you go work for somebody else, you intern, you start off as a junior designer, junior architect, you develop your skill, you develop your craft, then you go out and you hang your own shingle when you feel like you're ready. Or they're the ones that have this complete wildcatter, entrepreneurial spirit, and they say, you know what, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go fake it till I make it and learn on the fly. <laughs> I've seen both, I've seen both succeed. I've seen both fail. Um, I don't think there is a right or wrong way to do it. I think it depends on the personality, which yes, I think you're right. is more about probability. It's more about probabilities, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting because I, you know, I went to school you know, higher learning, so to speak, college, you know, university kind of stuff. I never completed a degree in anything. I kept going to school and then I get offered jobs and I quit. Um, I would not recommend the path I took as the easiest, but I guess I was kind of naive in a way. And I've also always been pretty ambitious so I managed to succeed without um, the benefit of a degree. I didn't. I didn't travel the regular route as you you know as you kind of describe it. I was one of the wildcatters, but um, I also think that there's a lot of luck involved in that particular path. You have to be in the right places at the right time. It not necessarily only to do with with uh, you know being forceful and, and pushing yourself forward. You also have to have some luck. I, the business that I now have, uh, I originally left another firm that I worked at with, a, with my boss and we started uh, the company and it grew and it became very successful. And over the years, that's really been the platform for everything else I've done. It's really interesting, something that you said. Yes, we all need a little bit of luck, but we also need some friends. Oh, yeah. No, nobody, nobody accomplishes what they need to accomplish um, without help. Nobody. I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've never seen it, you know, in any way, shape or form. I feel like um, we're in an interesting time now as well in design and architecture because the entire industry has really been turned on its head and you're in a really interesting space. So hospitality, senior yeah. living centers, clubs, yeah. restaurants, talk to me about going down that Avenue instead of the Uber mansion, the hotel, which every, you know, every designer seems to want to do. They want to do a hotel and I don't know what the allure is. What is the allure of a hotel? Well, I think for me, and I can only speak for myself. Um, so I, going back to what I started to tell you about leaving this other firm that I worked at with my boss, we did office interiors initially. And I had an opportunity because one of our clients bought a property in uh, Dallas that he wanted to turn into an office building. It was an old hotel. And so that was my opportunity to get in the hotel business. It turned out the city of Dallas would not permit him to convert it to a, an office building. 
So he said to me, I had a very good relationship with him. He said to me, how about designing a hotel for me? I went, okay. It was his first hotel and my first hotel. So we- The Adolphus? The Adolphus, exactly. Yeah, okay. And we, we learned together and it was, you know, it was, it was fraught, don't get me wrong, it wasn't easy, but it turned out to be very successful. He went on to start his own hotel company and he's very, very successful. And I went on to segue completely into hospitality. The reason I think it's appealing, or at least it is to me, and I think to the people that I work with in my own office, is it's kind of a little bit of everything. You have to be able to sort of put yourself in the place of the people that are going to be there, that you're trying to appeal to. You have to challenge yourself to kind of think about how the spaces are going to be used in a way that's more general than specific in a way. You know, we have done some residential work. The residential projects we've done are largely um, large homes. Um, and they're more personal, much more specific, where you're focused on one family or one person who's going to live there. A hotel is a totally different animal. It's, you know, and it, go ahead, finish the it's thought. It's kind of like, it is kind of like a house in one way, but in, the, in a lot of other ways, it's not. You know, it has much more, it has a lot of specific requirements that have to do with maintenance and care and, you know, being able to continually maintain the place looking in top-notch condition. So you have to be very cognizant of practicality in a sense, but then in another way, you're creating a fantasy. So you're trying to create a cleanable, maintainable fantasy, <laughs> if, if that makes any sense at all. Well, it, it does make sense. You know, what's funny. When I think about hotels, and, and design and hospitality. This is probably not the hotel, not the property that that a designer or an architect really wants to talk about. But whenever I think about hospitality and hotels, I think about the Madonna Inn. Oh yes, I was just there for lunch not so long ago. Were you? When yes. I was a, when I was a kid growing up in the San Fernando Valley, you know, a teenager in the eighties. Right. But a, a kid in the 70s, we did a ton of road trips. Road trips was our life. You know, that's right. those were our vacations as we, right. we did a road trip. So we'd go to Selvang, San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, that that route. And when we did, I remember being a 10 or 11 year old, so excited that I was going to get to stay at the Madonna Inn. And <laughs> I was I would I would wonder which room we would get. For those not familiar, <laughs> I'll put a link in the notes. Um, the Madonna Inn is this ho hotel in San Luis Obispo where, you know, you, you, can, you can pee in a waterfall uh, That's in right. the men's but room. Only, no, which, only if you're a boy. You can't pee in a uh, waterfall you know what? That's, if you're a girl. That's not true. Um, I've seen <laughs> videos. Uh, it's, become, it's become this cult classic where, you know, everyone's got to go see the waterfall urinal. It's just, right. it's, it's kind of interesting. But every room has a different motif, you know, a different theme. And as a, as a 10 year old boy wondering, you know, is it going to be the Flintstone room? Is it going to be the golf room? Which room are, you know, my sister and I would share a room and my parents right. would share a room. Right. Here's what it was for me. It was so exciting. It was not just going away from home, not just having a new experience, but it was, it was this thrill that, that, is kind of like re revitalized what travel is today, um, right. especially especially after the past three years, right? How do you how do you envision your role as a you know as a hospitality designer, someone who is who is crafting the experience for for people who come on a on a temporary ephemeral basis? Well, it's interesting because um, one of the things that I've been thinking about lately. Um, this all kind of ties into what's happening right now. So there's this immense demand for travel. There's this immense problem with supply chains. So for example, we're doing an awful lot of hotels right now that are faced with horrific issues with delivery of goods. And 
starting probably in the 80s, I'd say, there was a tremendous push on the part of the major brands to standardize hotels all around their world so that wherever you were in the world, if you opened your eye, you would know you were in a Hilton or a Marriott or a Hyatt or whatever, whatever the major brands were. That was the the religion at the time, if you will, for design in hotels. You could be creative in the public areas. That was okay. But the rooms had to be all the same. Now, because of supply chain issues and going back previous to that, when I did the Adolphus, we had all different kinds of room designs and we didn't think it was a bad idea. But of course, I was I was inexperienced in hospitality design. Then came the consistency issue. Now, because of supply chain problems, we are finding ourselves bending to the will, if you will, or the, or the challenges of obtaining enough stuff. So we're having to allow ourselves the latitude, if we want to finish a project on time, to have rooms be different, just because we can't get 200 of the same chairs or 200 of the same lamps or 200 of the same sofas. We can't. So we're going back to being this kind of put it together on top of which in the last, I'd say 10 years, maybe a little more, the major hotels have started to realize or realized that people didn't want that consistency. When you go stay at a hotel in Sedona, Arizona, you wanna wake up in the morning knowing you're in Sedona, Arizona. You don't wanna wake up in the morning knowing you're in a Hyatt or a Marriott. So being local has become much more important. Now with the supply chain problem, it's given us all as hospitality designers, kind of not, I wouldn't say carte blanche, but it's opened up this great new panorama of choices for us to be able to offer and be much more creative and look for much more kind of local onesie twosie things and say, hey, how about we'll put this in this room and we'll put this in that room. I mean, it takes us a lot more time and effort. It was much easier to design one hotel room for the entire building. This is much more challenging in terms of time and effort but it's also much more creative to me and much more interesting. You're listening to my conversation with Jill Cole of CMCA, and we'll be right back. We are living in a time of incredible growth, both technologically and creatively, with respect to interior design, exterior design, and architecture. There is no question. There are companies thinking differently about the business of design and how to make products super serve those for whom they're being made. One of those companies, and one of my favorites, is Moya Living, designer and fabricators of some of the most stunningly beautiful, incredibly durable, and highly functional kitchen, bath, and outdoor kitchen cabinetry on the market today. Powder-coated steel with stunning lines, vibrant colors, to fit any design style or aesthetic. A history of designing cabinetry for the scientific community, so you know it's been tested in some of the truly the most harsh conditions available. Moya O'Neill is the CEO and founder of Moya Living. She's the inspiration behind the design. Designers, their specification process is so simple. It will make your job so much easier. Check them out online through the socials at Moya Living, their website, moyaliving.com, and in the real world, their live kitchen showroom in Fountain Valley, California. Absolutely true. You know, interesting too. So I'm working on a design house project here in the Midwest. And the product that we specified in August, September of 21 was just delivered in the middle of June, 22. Yep. And between the fact that it was supposed to be supposed to be because they told us it would be delivered four weeks ago which is right. still forever ago, but the fact that it took an extra four weeks, it's like, why? Then when things right. got here, there were dents, dings, right. Right. scratches. Right. Um, I'm, really, I'm really stunned by the lack of care by many vendors and many manufacturers. Right. And I'm curious for you, you know, how, how do you 
how do you handle these relationships now? How do you how do you work with your vendors now? How do you work with your suppliers now, knowing that the supply chain is what it is and everything's late? And when it gets there, you're not going to turn it down and send it back. You're going to try to remedy Fix the it. situation. It, well, yeah. I mean, how, what are you doing now to remedy these situations? And how do you handle the relationships with, well, with your suppliers? Well, I mean, the first thing, I think the first thing, I'm sure in your instance too, the first thing you have to do when you start the project is you have to try to make the current situation with you know supply chain issues very front and center in the conversation with the client. Um, in hotels in particular, they, you know, it's one thing if you're doing residence, if, if the living room sofa doesn't show up on time, it's not a, it's not a cost thing. I realize, you know, people get frustrated and upset about it, but it's not the same thing in a hotel. If you don't have the lobby sofa, it's a cost thing or you don't have the beds for the bedrooms. You, you know, it's, it's, it's a financial issue. So the first thing you have to do is make sure that the, the client, whoever they are, understands the problem as much as possible. And you have to strategize a way to manage that situation because exactly what you just said. I mean, I just finished renovating a restaurant here in the Napa Valley and I explained to the owner of the restaurant, which is this, it's the three meal a day restaurant for the hotel, but it's also kind of a locals hangout. It's like a cafe pub kind of place. It's been here for 10 years and it's, it's, it's kind of beloved in the neighborhood. So I explained to the owner when I started the project, I said, luckily you have existing furniture. Cause I said, the problem's going to be, we'll get, you know, told that we can have these, the new dining room chairs and dining room tables by blah, blah, blah date. And it won't happen. And sure enough, it didn't happen. The stuff got stuck at the Oakland, you know, at the Oakland offloading docks because it came from overseas and we couldn't do anything about it. I said, you know, I'll, I'll go over to Oakland and I'll yell and scream, but they're not going to take the unload the container any faster. If I'm there, I just have to wait. And luckily we had, you know, we had planned, we had contingency plans. So we waited, but it's frustrating. Exactly what you say. It took a month longer to get the furniture than we expected. Here's the other side of that. The other side of that is, um, I feel like the, the timeline for good design has, has been expedited. So you know, for years I've said, you know, designers and architects, in my opinion, are futurists. You, you, you look into the future to decide what people are going to want and how they're going to live. I think much of the industry, if not all the industry, was completely caught off guard by the pandemic, right. like everybody else. But at the same time, the industry had the ability to look back 100 years to 1918 and see what did happen, right? So linoleum became a thing. Uh, Actual furniture that, you know, subway tile and the furniture, the porous woods were moved out of the bathroom because of bacteria and issues that people had, which was smart, but people learned from this experience, the idea of, you know, how design can be more functional. Right. But but now we're, we're in a place where, you know, in years past, when I would talk to architects and designers, an architect was designing for 75, 100, 150 years. That's when they imagined that their structure would, would last. A designer, you know, you're looking at something that would be 15, 20, 25 years that a design would last. A design, if it's, if it's done correctly, should last that long because you're buying quality materials, you're using quality workmanship. You know, theoretically, these ideas should last, but it feels like things are being torn down and replaced so fast now, so much faster. Do you have a take on that? How long do you design for? Well, I mean, I would tell you that there are rules of thumb in the hospitality industry as far as timelines um 
when you're doing a hotel, the rule of thumb usually is that the soft goods, which means, you know, the, the fabrics, the carpeting, the draperies, all of those, the soft goods, generally you want a lifespan of about seven years and the case goods and hard goods, you, you assume 15 to 20. And in terms of the budget, the hard goods are much, you know, are a much bigger part of the budget than the soft goods. So economically, it, it works out okay. I'm referring mostly to rooms. I mean, hotels do, just like houses, there, there's fashion, you know, there's color, definitely color fashion, you know, colors come in and out of fashion. You have to be a little, a little more sensitive to that when you're doing a hotel because you don't want it to date like three years after you've done it. But on the other hand, like I said, you're walking this fine line between creating some kind of fantasy for people like your little boy experience of going to the Madonna Inn. It was so different from your home. You want to give people that. But on the same hand, you want to make sure that they don't get bored with it. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah, I saw that. I've been there. So there's that. It's, it's a real balancing act. It is at the same time. I, and it's, it's interesting too, because, you know, the soft goods, seven years, case goods, hard goods, longer. But you're also de- designing, I, I feel like the performance fabrics that have, that have come along recently, um, materials should last longer. Now, if, they're design, if you're using a designer like Jill Cole, um, who, who, know, who is not designing to trend, but designing to taste, then you've you've got a future in that you know i've always felt that the design should outlast the materials is that i think you're that's right. fair right that's very i think that's very that's very sound really it's on my it's on my mind um because it's so funny oftentimes news of the day will will find its way into my conversations with amazing right. creatives like you and last night i was up pretty late here in the midwest watching a beverly hills city council meeting why which, yeah <laughs> exactly because i did a i did a piece on it you can go listen to the episode that i published a couple of days ago on June 20th of 22, for those who are following along on the podcast, when you hear this, you can go back to the date and hear about 1001 North Roxbury. Um, 1001 North Roxbury Drive is is a home that uh, a Carlton Burgess designed home, whether he was an architect or whether he was a builder, people's a contractor, people still debate that, but he's on the list of 150 master architects of Beverly Hills Uh and Someone came in and bought this property for what thirty nine million dollars on the same right. street, on the same street that you know, right next door to where Lucy and Desi lived, and right next door to Jack yeah, Benny. I, know exactly. and- I actually, I tell you, I grew up, I grew up in Beverly Hills. I know the house. I knew the house. Oh, do when I was growing up. Oh, sure. Okay. So, so someone comes in and buys the property, and now. Um, they wanted to, so a certificate of eligibility of ineligibility was issued because they said it wasn't iconic. It wasn't architecture worth saving. So the city, city staff issued a certificate of ineligibility. And then this turns into a heavyweight brawl at a city council meeting where you've wow. got major, major stars on one side saying you need to save this and design talent, you know, on the other side, Mark Rios, who had worked on the home twice, wrote a letter and did a video, a well-produced video, you know, saying that it's not, it's not iconic. It's not worth saving. And so at the end of the day, and I hate to ruin it for everyone, I hate to give the spoiler away, but um, at the end of the meeting, uh, the certificate of ineligibility was upheld, meaning that this house is most likely on, uh, is going to be torn down uh, for something else. And I talk about, the design outlasting the materials, because this is a this is not a teardown. This is not a fixer upper. This is a house that is absolutely impeccable. It right. is impeccably designed. It is stunningly, beautifully 
the landscape architecture is, is amazing. The, the home is, you know, the home it's, it's right. not a, it's not a teardown. It's a beautiful home. That is, it's a, it's a, however you want to call it, whether you think the architecture is worth saving or not, the, the design has, has outlasted the materials so that it's been refreshed, but this is a home that was built in the 1940s. So maybe, right. you know, 80 years, is that, is that how long architecture is supposed to last in the U.S. now? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, unfortunately, there's, there's the whole situation of, you know, who decides what lasts and what doesn't or what should last and what shouldn't. You know, I know there, you know, there are famous architects who are no longer among the living and their work is, you know, considered now historic and needs to be saved. And I, I respect that very much. Um, it's not the same with interior designers, I would point out, to the greatest extent, you know, known to mankind. I can't really think of an interior design project that for historic reasons needs to be saved yet, which is sort of like, okay, but architecture definitely, and even to some extent more so maybe in, in Europe, uh, gardens that are historic that are saved. So growing up in that very community in Beverly Hills, which I'm like, I knew the people that lived at 1001 Roxbury Drive when I was in high school. Um, I remember the house very well. I, I think those buildings should be preserved. I remember, this is something that you could probably do a program on actually, Josh. There was a house called the, she the Sheik's House. It was right it was like a block from the Beverly Hills Hotel. You can Google it. He oh, wait a it. minute. Hold, yeah. the, hold the phone. Can I, can I, I, I'm sorry. I rarely interrupt, but okay. I just, I, I have to tell you yes. that for me, it wasn't about the design. It was about my parents driving me to Beverly Hills, you know, from the Valley. To see it. <laughs> well, so my dad's barber was at 9,000 Sunset and okay. my mom my, my grandmother was on Olympic. So, uh -huh. and sorry, we're getting totally in the weeds here, but it's funny. <laughs> so we would go down Sepulveda or the 405 and then get off at the, at sunset and then drive past it. My dad used to slow down because it was hilarious because the statues were white marble with their genitalia painted. And so my dad would slow down because he That's thought it was right. hilarious. My mom would speed up. Right. <laughs> but, that, but that property, I, I remember, uh, again, driving, and isn't that what iconic architecture, and please finish your thought, but isn't that what iconic architecture is, something that makes you think about it 30, 40, 50 years later? Yeah, you bet. You bet. So, I mean, all I, all I can say to you is, I, you know, obviously that's really kind of the point of the story. Um, People did come from all over and stop and stare at this place. And, you know, but do you know what happened? Do you know the rest of the story about that place? Some of the neighbors were so, so offended. They set fire, supposedly, you know, the building burned down. It was, it all burned. And the, 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 the rumor in Beverly Hills amongst us, the residents, was that some of the angry neighbors who lived on either side, because that was some of the most expensive real estate in Beverly Hills, they literally purportedly in the middle of the night torched the place and burned it down because they hated nope. the tourists, they hated being laughed at, they, they resented the entire experience. So it was there for maybe a year or a little more and then it was gone. So was it just the statues or was it the, was it the architect? Because it was ornate. Burn. It was opulent. I think the fire department, I think the fire department was allowed to let the entire thing burn personally. I mean, that was the rumor in Beverly Hills. Really? Yes. That's amazing. And it was, it was the, it was the former Shah of Iran. No, it was not. It was a, it was a Sheikh. Uh, he was a Saudi, I believe. Um, he had several wives. It wasn't the Shah of Iran. He did not own that property. That was, that's absolutely untrue. Interesting. 
That's fascinating. I, I would actually. Name. They used to call it, I mean, it was called around where we lived. It was called the Sheik's house because I didn't live very far from there. And it was called the Sheik's house. Was it, um, was it a notable architect that designed it? Uh, I, you know something, it was there. My family moved to Beverly Hills when I was very young. We moved there in the fi- late fifties and um, it was there already. And I don't think it was anybody particularly famous. It was just a very big, very kind of, you know, glitzy property in the first place. The people that lived there sold it to the shake and I don't know what year. I, I mean, I, I'd have to look all this up to figure out when it all happened. But Hey, Jill, are we talking about the same property, the one with the, with the statues yes. on Sunset? With, okay, yes. all right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Anyway, it's a, it is a, I, I personally witnessed it all. So I know I can tell you that the entire thing burned down. It's not there anymore. Not the statues, not the house, nothing. It's been subdivided. No, there's, yeah, it's been subdivided. I think there's four properties there now. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because this came up and here's the thing. It's when, when issues like this arise, I mean, you know, the neighbors taking to it with torches, that's, I hadn't heard that. That's crazy. But what's, it, it's I mean, almost. It was, the, yeah, it was, that was amongst the people who lived there. That was the rumor. You know, I don't know if it, I, I really, now I'm curious after we get off this, I'm going to Google it and see if I can find out what actually happened. You know what? I'm going to do the exact same thing. It, what's, inter- what's interesting too is it almost feels like it's it's being done the same way, albeit entirely different. You know, if you have enough money, you buy a property, you hire an, an attorney, they go by the letter of the law, according to the cities. The cities themselves are so ill-equipped to map properties and to to be able to tell anyone what is iconic versus what isn't they have no they have no no measurement no way of there's just no there's no method there's no means that that is universal and i think it's it's tragic because you know if you look at if you look at europe you can be in a hotel that was converted on the inside to a hotel which was once a residence converted into a hotel where you'll still see indoor rooms where it'll break through. You can see where the, all of the wonderful work is on the wall, on the walls. Right. Um, I don't know. Well, you know, it's interesting because we just did a, we just did a project in downtown Napa. Uh, it's not, it's a hotel. It's only, it's only seven rooms. Um, it's a bed and breakfast, but it was originally uh, his, uh, a residence and it's a historic landmark in Napa County. So we, when we did it, we could not do anything with the exterior at all. We had to leave it completely intact. They permitted us to change the, over the years, you know, the building was built in the 1880s, it's Victorian. Um, the, color, the color scheme of the exterior we were allowed to change, but we were not allowed to really do anything else to violate the, uh, the building exterior. The interior, we could do whatever we wanted with. We tried as much as possible to preserve the good parts of it that were left. And some of it had been destroyed previously, but we did we did restore and preserve the things that we were able to, to the greatest extent possible. That being said, and it's really interesting because I've read things that, that have been written about you in the past, um, you know, for instance, living on a t- in a TV set or where an iconic, just uh, if you could live anywhere you wanted to live, where you would want to live. And I believe your answer was Cleo- Cleopatra's Palace or what was it? Hadrian's Villa. Uh-huh. Um, why? As I told you, like, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a half-baked archaeologist to this day. I just, I'm so fascinated by ancient architecture. I love it. I mean, you take me to Pompeii and leave me there for a month. I'm happy. And I just wander around and stare at stuff. So it's so interesting too, because as we break, and I feel like, 
we are in a, 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 a renaissance, a golden age of design. I really do feel that way, where, where there are more, more is being permitted for people to experiment with, you know, and people are trying new things. And I think that that really is the superpower of great designers and great design is that you can try anything. You know, it's more expensive with architecture than it is with design in most cases. Um, because, you know, changing paint, changing soft goods is less expensive than changing case goods or, or certainly architecture, but people are trying more now as, as a, as an archeologist at heart, but still when you're doing hospitality, I feel like sometimes you're, you're still kind of locked in to certain, with certain guardrails. Are you able to expand and be as creative as you'd like to be? And how do you sell some of your ideas? Well, yeah, the answer is yes and no. I mean, first of all, I would say to you, it's important to recognize that, you know, at least in my specific area, um, we do get involved a lot with interior architecture as well. So we work very closely with the project architect to develop the volumes of spaces and how they flow together and how they relate. Um, You do, you are, you know, it's an interesting kind of yin and yang because you've got the public areas which are much more of a blank slate. And then you have the rooms, which, you know, this sounds like mean, but basically it's a box, you know, regardless of the size of the box, it's a box whether it's a resort and it's a box by itself, or it's a stack of boxes in a high rise, it's a box. Um, And so, you know, I I remember once somebody asked me, I said, how many different places can you possibly put a toilet? And, you know, that's true. You know, you sit there and you go, okay, today I think I'll put the toilet on the left of the entry door and tomorrow I'll put it on the right of the entry door or I'll move it over by the window, you know, there's that. And, that really kind of stretches you pretty far because you are dealing with a box and how many different ways can you treat it? You know, it's just a fixed volume that public areas on the other hand, you go a little crazier because you've got, like I said, it's more of a blank slate. And um, that's one of the things that really excites me about what I do. You have these, the yin and yang of, of hospitality design, which is, kind of a little bit of everything. Do you have a list of projects that you would like to do that you go about, you call it a bucket list, call it a a dream list. Do you have a list of things that you would like to accomplish? Hmm. That's a very good question. Um, I guess the answer, the quick answer is probably not. I probably have some aspirational things that I'd like to accomplish. I'm not sure, you know, professionally, you know, I, love to, I love to have an opportunity to work on something that people say, this is gonna be really hard. This is gonna be really difficult. I, I love a challenge. You know, when someone says to me, this is a real toughie, um, bring it on. That's, that's my idea of, of a fun thing. I, I love trying to figure things out. So the harder it is, the happier I am, truthfully. Um, that, I know that doesn't specifically answer your question, but that's what, what does it for me. Tough stuff. And one of the things that I love too is that you are a hardcore user of design. Uh, we were talking about this before, you know, your, your home is also your, your test kitchen. You know, you don't, you use it. I have, I have pictures. I have proof. Right. Yeah. No, I I mean, I run, I run a mini hotel for starters. I live in the Napa Valley. So there's very few people that say if, you know, like if I extend an invitation, pretty much I always get, you know, the person will say, yeah, when can I come? And I have a lot of guest rooms and I'm accustomed to, I love entertaining. And even before I lived here in the Napa Valley, you know, my husband and I had a boat. I always had visitors on the boat. I was always entertaining it. You know, I love 
entertaining people. I love welcoming them into my, my environment. Um, and the other thing is I love cooking for people. You know, that's another thing that I really enjoy. I love to sit down at the table with people and see them enjoying something I've prepared. So all of that, it's all part of the same thing. So how, how has your hospitality design affected the way you view residential use? Well, the rooms in my house, um, I've, I've taken some of the, I guess, the guest rooms in my house. I definitely think about people's comfort and make, make sure that they're, you know, I, I, we've all stayed at various friends and families, guest rooms and gone, hmm, this isn't too comfortable. I try to make, make, <laughs> make my house as comfortable as possible for visitors is the only thing I can say that's diplomatic and tactful. How's that? <laughs> but what about specifically, for example, um, you and your use of your kitchen, do you have any, did you use anything in your own personal kitchen that would be found in some of the design in a hotel? Do you, are there any amenities that you think hospitality utilizes that is on its way for greater residential use? Um, you know, I, that's, that's probably the only thing I could say that I can relate to, um, you know, one to the other is the whole idea of exhibition kitchens and exhibition cooking. I am very fascinated by that whole um, kind of, it's almost like performance art to me. Um, I love the idea of having a kitchen that people can participate in if they choose, enough space for everyone to be able to hang out in the kitchen, have a drink, even stir a pot if that's their, you know, if that's what they wanna do. Uh, people seem to enjoy that, at least in my house. I'm not suggesting that, you know, the hotel restaurants that we design or the freestanding restaurants that the guests are going to go into the kitchen and, you know, stir the pot. But I, I've, you know, I personally have experienced chefs tables in, in kitchens, in restaurants. And I think those are very exciting things to do. Whenever my husband and I go out to eat, if we're in a particularly you know, interesting place, we'll generally ask to go see the kitchen and several places that I've been there, they can't wait to show you the kitchen. I think we talked about this, like the French Laundry, you know, they have a kitchen that's all glassed in. The Troigro brothers in France, I remember the first time I was there, the kitchen is literally like this jewel box and the entire the whole restaurant faces it and all their guest rooms face it as well. So you are facing food preparation all the time and it's like performance art. And I think that's wonderful. I didn't even think about that. That is amazing. Just another way to sort of open up new avenues in design. And, and really that is one of the things that excites me most. And, um, you know, last question I have for you. I'm I'm working on a on a program now talking to designers who were at Salone del Mobile uh, this past week. Is there any Bye. place? Where's the next place you're excited to be going? Uh, I'm. I think in the fall I'm going to be going. I, I'm a. I, you know, I also I'm a foodie as part of my kitchen thing. Okay. And I love white truffles and it's white truffle season in the fall. So I, I think we're, we're nearly ready to book to go over to indulge in white truffle season. So where do you come? Where do you go from hope? Where do you go for that? Uh, well, actually this time, I think we're going to, we're thinking we're going to go to Bologna and then sort of circle the area. I mean, ground zero for white truffles is Alba, um, which isn't that far away. Um, you know, this is getting in the weeds in food, but one of the things that is disturbing to my husband and I, being truffle fans, truffles need to be as fresh as possible. When they get a little old, you, they still smell wonderful, but when you taste them, they have no taste. So you want to get as close to the source as you can 
to eat them because then they really are truffly. And we are both big truffle fans. So Alba is you know, sort of like Mecca where we come from. All right. I, I love that. Um, I hope you have a wonderful time. And I can't wait to I can't wait to catch up and, and hear some hear some stories about what you what you got to eat and make. Yeah, uh, and maybe Zoom, by then Zoom will have figured out a way to have it be like remember the old old movies they had for a short while that had scents where they pump them into the movie oh. theater. See, they should figure out a way to do that on Zoom. Wouldn't that be good? <laughs> it could be. That would be amazing. Jill, thank you so much for the time. Thank I really appreciate gosh. it. It was great talking to you. Have a great rest of your day. If you've been listening to Convo by Design for a while now, you have heard me tell you about Article. Great style. Really, it's as simple as that with Article. Things have been challenging for design professionals and their clients for, what, two years? Two plus years now? You know this already. What you might not know is that it doesn't have to be if you're looking for exceptionally beautiful modern furniture. Article provides a simple and easy way to creating a beautiful modern space because Article works direct with their manufacturers on production of unique and stunning pieces. Then they work directly by providing this well-crafted design directly to you. This direct relationship means you aren't wondering where your furniture is and you're getting it for an incredible value. What could possibly be better than that? In many cases, the shipping is flat rate, which means no surprises right? Even more, their culture and service are rooted in their core values. Customer obsession, doing it differently, ownership mindset, winning together. If you're a designer, architect, or residential developer, you must check out their trade program. Discounts, special support, and exclusive perks. Article has the beautiful modern furniture you're looking for at an incredible price, at an incredible value, and you need to check them out. Check out article.com, or if you go to the show notes, there is a specific link which will take you, if you're in the trade, directly to their trade program. You have to see it to really believe it. Thank you, Article. Thank you, Jill. Loved our conversation. Thank you to Convo by Design partners and sponsors, Thermosol, Moya Living, Article Furniture, Franz Wigner, and York Wall Coverings. And thank you for joining me every week for these conversations. I do hope you enjoy them as much as I do. And give yourself a mental hug right now because we are all living through some very interesting times, personally and professionally. It has gotten much harder to do business, create wonderful and sublime spaces, but remember why you do what you do and for whom you do it. Your clients depend on you to make their lives a little better. Check back here every week for more stories of design, professionals, and creatives who are doing this at a very high level as well. Get some new ideas and inspiration to take your firm to the next level. Until next week, be well and take today first. (laughs) 